Why don't you get your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 2. I'm really excited about what I have to share this weekend, and, uh, and I know this could shock you, but it's not really a traditional Christmas message. I know you're shocked by that. I just don't do well at traditional messages. I, I don't know why. Um, I can never do one. So for me, I know that you know we should gather, and I could say something like, love and joy come to you, and, 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 and it, woo, that was so good, and I got warm tinglies, and I'm so excited. Um, but I don't really do that very well at all. In fact, I don't do it. And so um, I just, I can't. I don't, when I sit down to prepare a message, I always think, God, what is your spirit saying? And, and I'm not saying that his spirit is not saying love and joy and peace, but it's more what is your spirit saying to pathway and, and what do I need to communicate? And so I have something. I'm going to communicate it from the Christmas story, but we're just going to look at it from a perspective that probably you've never looked at it. And I'm going to tell you some things that you've never heard. And, um, and, and, and then we're going to get some application out of it that hopefully we will, we will leave here with as we're moving forward. That will be very significant. And so, um, in in Luke chapter 2, verse 1, I'll go ahead and read uh, the Christmas story. I, we Every year at, at, when I grew up, uh, my grandfather, when we got to my, it was Granny and Pop, uh, Granny and Pop's house, um, we, the family would gather and Papa would always read uh, the Christmas story from Luke chapter 2. And I remember as a kid, that was annoying uh, because I wanted to open presents and I knew Jesus was born in a manger. I was just in the play, you know, a week ago. How many had this experience? I was in the church Christmas play. I was a shepherd, and I got to see the whole thing. And so uh, I'm totally up on it. And now Papa wants to read the Christmas story. And um, so, but but it was always really I cherish those moments now, as probably a lot of you do. Maybe you didn't realize how significant they were when you were a kid. But now I'd love to hear Papa read the Christmas story again. And and we gather. In fact, we'll gather this evening with my parents. And my dad doesn't read it; he recites it. He I don't know if he has the whole Bible memorized or something. But anyways, he will get to Luke chapter two and he will recite it uh, in the King James version, the the only version uh, that if you grew up that way. If if you remember that, it's not actually true. No offense to anyone. Um, but believe it or not, God doesn't speak King James. And King James wasn't even a Christian. He was actually a king. But he did commission the Bible to be put in English. And for that, we are grateful that God can use even a, someone that doesn't really have a lot of faith in him to give us the Bible. But it's the King James Bible only because King James named it after himself. So anyways, but, but they quote the Christmas story, and, and I love hearing it. And so we're going to read a part of it this morning. Uh, as I think would be fitting. And so in Luke chapter 2, uh, the Christmas story is in Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2. And um, it says, Then it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole world should be registered or taxed. And uh, praise God. And uh, so I don't know if he was a Democrat or a Republican, but he taxed everybody. The census took first uh, place while Quirinius was governing Syria so that all the world would be registered, everyone to his own city. So Joseph also went from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. And so it was while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. And, and this is really where the whole message, this is the one phrase that I couldn't get out of my heart, my spirit. So this is where I knew I had to zoom in. But this was the phrase when I started praying about it. It was because there was no room for them in the end. No room for them in the end. I, I called this message this morning, uh, making room for Christmas. Making room for Christmas. And uh, you could even say it this way, making room for Christ. Um, 
I don't know if you know this, and if you've been around church long enough, occasionally a pastor will endeavor to prove to you how intelligent he is by destroying your nativity scene. Have you ever been in one of those services. We, we have a tendency to do that as pastors. And, and so they'll tell you that there's some things about Christmas that aren't exactly the way we perceive them and assume them to be and celebrate them. And unfortunately, I have to be that guy today because I have to do that to make a point. Um, and so it's not to prove that I'm smart at all, even though I think I am, you know, at least average intelligence. Uh, but I, but there are some Christmas myths, so I'll just give you a few real quickly. And don't get mad. I'm not a Grinch. I'm not trying to steal your Christmas away from you. And I'm not telling you that you should go home and destroy your nativity. Okay, your nativity is safe with me. Are you, are you with me? And so, are you still breathing? Are you? You're, some of you are like, my God, Ethel. What are we even here for? Um, but there are some myths. You know, one myth is that there were three wise men. And, uh, and there really, we don't know how many wise men there were. Um, a lot of people assume there were three because there was three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And some people assume there were three because we assume there were three shepherds, which we also don't know how many shepherds there were either. Bummer. And so we just know there were some shepherds. But three is a good number. It's the number of Trinity, and it really balances out a nativity, and I think that's what was important. Um, and so we have three wise men and, and three shepherds. Um, and um, so that's, that's one myth. Uh, the, the other um, myth is that the wise men were actually there at the birth of Christ at the stable. And that's not really a myth. We, we know that they probably didn't see Jesus until about he was two years old. And we know that because they talked to Herod. And Herod uh, was so scared about this king taking his throne that he initiated what's called the murder, murder of the innocents, where he had all children, all boys, under the age of two murdered. And so we know at that point that Jesus was probably about two when the wise men found him. And, and by the way, it was like in Egypt because um, God showed Joseph you have to take the baby and, and Mary and go to Egypt. And so he left before the, the slaughter of the, the innocents. And so the wise men weren't actually at the stable. You don't have to throw away your nativity. It's good to remember those wise men. And there's a lot we can learn from those wise men. Um, but uh, the next myth, <laughs> this is so fun, isn't it? Uh, the next myth is that Jesus was born on December 25th. Um, I think most of us probably know. If you don't, I'm so sorry. But Jesus was not actually born. His birth certificate does not say uh, December 25th. He was probably born in the spring, actually. But but this is when we celebrate. And it's okay to celebrate. Most of us, like when we celebrate with our family, we celebrate you know, on the Friday night after or before our birthday. So it's okay that we celebrate. We don't have to change. You can still give your gifts tomorrow. Okay, You're so safe. So good. All right, don't worry. But that is kind of a myth that um, we celebrate. Here's another myth. This one you'll love is that um, it, it's a myth that Jesus was white. He, you know, most of your nativities have this, you know, fairly complected little white Caucasian Anglo baby, and um, that's not anything accurate about that. Uh, Jesus was not a white baby uh, at all. Uh, Joseph and Mary were Middle Easterners. I don't know if you've ever been to the Middle East. They don't have fairly complected Anglo white babies there. Uh, he would have been very brown-skinned at, at best, and so uh, that's kind of a myth. But don't throw your nativity away. It's okay. If you have a white baby Jesus or a black baby Jesus or a brown baby Jesus, it's baby Jesus. We're good with it, okay? You don't have to throw any of it away. Um, and, then, and then here's the one that, that might be a little bit new to you, is that Mary and Joseph were turned away by a hotel manager. <laughs> Um, that's, you know, we kind of have that story that, you know, they knocked, you know, at the Holiday Inn Express and, and, you know, the whole ma hotel manager came out and said, you know, do you have your confirmation number? You know, and they're like, no, we booked it through booking.com and we've lost the uh, email and 
Well, I'm sorry, no confirmation number. We're all booked up. We gave you room away. You know, I'm sorry. I hope you don't freeze to death while you're giving birth out in the cold. And so we kind of have this idea that they were turned away by the Holiday Express manager. And then because of that, we also have this assumption that Jesus was actually born in a stable. And he actually wasn't. And so this is where I know all of you are like, my God, it's antichrist. But it's, it's really, it's really um, we, we make all that assumption because the Bible says there was no room for them in the inn. And the word in there is not actually the most accurate translation of that word. And in other words, it would have really been said there was no room for them in the guest quarters. And so because it says inn, we assume innkeeper. And because there was no room, we assume they were turned away. But let me ask you a question. I mean, most of you, I, I, I know many of you, and I would assume this of all of you, if a man shows up with a pregnant woman and knocks on your door and the guest room is full, are you really going to say, hey, hope it works out for you? Are you even going to say, hey, there's a barn right out here. You could try that. I mean, would you really turn away a pregnant woman, right? You know, I, I don't think most of us would. And, and David, um, sorry, Joseph was actually of the lineage of David. He was going to his hometown. It's a small town. Even to this day, it's about 30,000 people. It's a small town, and he would have been known, and he was of the house of David, and he would have been probably going to a relative's house or a friend's house, and so he would have been knocking on of doors of people he at least had some type of relationship with, um, even though they probably weren't chatting or on Facebook at the time, but they would have kind of known each other, and they wouldn't have turned them away. And so we kind of make these assumptions, and people have through the years, because there's no room in the inn. Well, that means the hotel was full, but the hotel manager was so nice after being mean to them that he said, well, you can give birth by the cow. And, um, and so that's not exactly what happened. And so I want to show you kind of a cross-section of a peasant's home in Bethlehem. And so, guys, if you have that graphic, if you could throw it up there for me. And so they, the houses were kind of built on, on a hill. And so they actually had a room or a place for animals to be brought into the house. That was to keep the animals safe. It was to keep the animals from dying or being stolen or whatever or running off. Um, but it was also for heat. <laughs> and so, um, so this was actually how it would have been. They were built on kind of the sides of mountains and cave, you know, or, or hills. And so they'd have this first place and this kind of a cross section, which would have been kind of the stable area, if you will. And then they had the main room. And then up the hill, they would have had a guest room. And so when the Bible says there was no room for them in the end, the word in the Greek actually means uh, guest quarters or guest room. It's a different word than when Jesus talks about the good Samaritan taking the man that had been beaten to the inn. That word actually means lodging for travelers. That was the Holiday Inn Express, right? And so they're not the same word. And so this would have been a peasant's home, and they would have a stable where they brought the animals, and they would have the main room, and then they would have the guest room. And so what, what, what the Bible is actually saying is that Jesus would have been born in the main room because there was no room in the guest room. And by the way, between the stable and the main room would have been a manger, a feeding trough, where the animals would have eaten. And so kind of right where that little line is, right there, kind of segregating, if you were a stable main room, they would have actually had a feeding trough. And so it does say Jesus was laid in a manger, right, because there wasn't room in the guest room. And so that's what most theologians actually believe after studying this. And so I don't want to, you don't have to change your nativity and try to find a peasant's home with a stable and a guest room and all that. You don't have to do that. It, it, the sentiment is, is still there, but this is probably 
more accurate. And the reason, the reason that I, I wanted to point this out is because I wanted to kind of look at, in particular, who we'll call the innkeeper, who was just a peasant man, uh, lower class probably, middle lower class. Uh, but we want to look at it kind of through his perspective because where he has, in some ways, kind of been the bad guy, he wouldn't even let him inside. And then he was kind of like, well, at least he gave him a barn to stay in. To me, I think what he did was extraordinarily significant and that we can actually pull a lot from it if we just look at what he did and, and the results that it produced. And so I'll kind of give you the sermon in a sentence and it will make more sense at the end. But this way, if you fall asleep, then when the family gathers this evening for dinner, you can still pretend like you know what's going on, right? And so, um, but this is kind of the idea that I had, and this is the underscore of the whole message is that the room we make determines the glory that we see. The room we make for Jesus determines the glory that we see. And so just looking at the innkeeper, let me give you three things that he did. Uh, the first thing that he did was he opened the door. I mean, you can imagine his, his guest room is full, the cows are inside, um, and there's a knock at the door, and he opens the door to find, we assume, a donkey and Mary and Joseph. That's about it. You know, no Louis Vuitton bags or suitcases, you know, probably some kind of sack or something, but here Mary and Joseph. And so here's the, here's the door, and he opens it. And I just want to take a side trail because I want to point out that, that, the, that they knocked on the door of what we'll call a peasant. That when the king of the world, literally, the king of all kings, was about to be born, he didn't knock on the door of a palace. He knocked on the door of a peasant. And, and that's good if, if you feel like that you're just kind of normal. Now, if you feel like you're a king and a prince and you live in a palace, I think it's still good. But I think for some of us, maybe that some days feel a little common, maybe a little overlooked, maybe a little bit unseen. I think it's so significant that when Jesus came to save the world, the king of all kings wasn't born in a palace. He was born in the home of a peasant. It's kind of interesting because he was of the lineage of David. Who was David? David was the illegitimate son of Jesse who was so looked at in, in disdain that when Samuel showed up and say, can you call your sons in because God wants to anoint a king? They didn't even think to invite David to the party. Like even assuming one of his brothers would have been anointed king, he would have found out later by somebody. And so here is David, the overlooked. And then here's the town of Bethlehem, the least of the tribes of Judah, the least of the cities of Judea. And then there's this peasant's home. And I think it's awesome because what, what it tells me is God picks some of the most mundane places to do some of the most miraculous things. That God picks some of the most ordinary circumstances to do the most extraordinary miracles. It also tells me that you don't have to be of a certain class or a certain net worth or of a certain situation or upbringing or pedigree to experience the glory of God that he will make himself known to all of us from the least to the greatest. God got ready to send a birth announcement when Jesus was born and who did he send it to? A bunch of shepherds, social outcasts, industrious, but social outcasts. They lived in a field with sheep all the time. 
But yet God wants to announce the glory of the birth of his son. And he didn't send an angelic host to the palace, to the kings. He sent the birth announcement to a bunch of men standing in a field, probably too long with sheep, smelling like sheep. And it's to them that it was proclaimed glory in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Right? It's great because what I realize is you can never be too common to be overseen by God. You can never be too ordinary that God doesn't have something extraordinary that he's willing to do through your life. And to me, here's just an ordinary innkeeper. Really just an ordinary man. Just a peasant guy. And it's on his door that there's a knock. And what did he do? He just opened the door. He opened the door. 1 Corinthians 1.26 says, Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. See, I qualify on all three counts. I wasn't wise, <laughs> I wasn't powerful, and I wasn't wealthy. Yet God called me. And it says, instead, God chose the things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they're wise. And he chose those things which are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose, chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. Paul's talking to the Corinthians and he's saying, hey, guys, this is you. God doesn't look for the qualified. God doesn't look for the mighty, for the great, for the most intelligent, for the most wise, for the most powerful people. That's not God's style. God looks for the shepherd boy on the backside of the pasture with the sheep when he's looking for a king. Right? God looks for a man like Abraham who doesn't even know him. We don't know what was special about Abraham at all. But God looked for him and said, hey, I'd like to make you a great nation. And I'm just saying what I love about this story and what I see with this innkeeper, if you will, is there was nothing extraordinary about him, and I kind of like that. But here's what he did. He opened the door. He opened the door to what God wanted to do, even though he may not have understood what God was actually trying to do. When Jesus knocked, he responded. And Jesus didn't knock on the door of a palace. He knocked on the door. And here's the amazing thing to me is that, that there's a knock. Because think about it. If a king was about to be born, and the only place this king could be born was the house of a peasant, they wouldn't knock on the door. They would commandeer the house. But that's, the way, that's not the way. See, Jesus is a conquering king, but he will not conquer you. He knocks and allows you to choose whether you're going to open the door or not. In fact, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, it says this. He says, look, I stand at the door and knock. I stand. Think about this. The king of the world, the Lord of all lords, the savior of the universe, stands at the door and knocks and says, hey, would you like to open the door for what I would like to do? And most of the time, we don't really understand exactly what he's trying to do. I don't think the innkeeper really understood that the Savior of the universe was about to be born in his living room. But I think even still, 
He had enough discernment to say, well, you know, Joseph's kind of saying this and Mary's saying this and I don't know exactly what's, but I tell you what, guys, why don't you come on in, right? He just, he just opened the door. He was willing to open the door. The Bible says that, that we have to trust in the Lord, Proverbs 3, with all of our heart and lean not on our own understanding. We don't lean. And, and isn't it kind of human nature that we love to lean on what we understand, right? You know what else you lean on? a crutch. And I think sometimes our understanding is a crutch for the faith we're scared to exhibit or exude. Right? Well, I don't understand what God's doing. Very few people ever did. <laughs> I can tell you most of the time you won't understand what God's doing till it's in your rearview mirror. It's hard to understand what God's doing out your windshield. Am I right? And so this is why we have to learn, if we're, gonna, if we're really going to see the glory of God and God's power and his might and his miraculous ability in and through our lives, if we're going to see it, we have to learn to lean into what we don't understand. We have to learn to lean into what God wants to do. He opened the door. He didn't understand but he opened the door. I wonder, I wonder what God would love to do through your life if you could just open the door to it. Right. Would, you could be a missionary. You could start a business. Right? You could start a ministry. You could probably change the world, but God's not going to make his own room in your life. He's just going to knock on the door. And then we decide, <laughs> we decide if we're going to open the door or not. And so the, the innkeeper, he made room. Here's the second thing. Um, I'm sorry. The first thing was he, he opened the door. Here's the second thing. He made room. He made room. Um, I was thinking about, you know, you've, you've seen those movies and I couldn't think of one in particular, but all of a sudden, like the, the baby is about to be born and we're not going to get to the hospital. And all of a sudden we start rearranging the furniture. Have you ever seen one of those shows or movies or something like that happen? And, and I'm thinking about this. This is, I mean, this was a peasant's home. It wasn't like a 3,000 square foot home with multiple bedrooms and all that. And some of you may have family in, or maybe you're going to see family and you know what it is to pull out the air mattresses and to move a couch and a coffee table right? Because you don't have guest quarters for everybody. And, you know, we're going to kind of like Christmas vacation. Praise God. We're going to have a, a good old family Christmas. And so Griswold Christmas. Anyways, never mind. So anyways, but you know what it is to, to start. And that's what I thought about this is that for him to invite them in when the guest quarters were already filled, they didn't have multiple bedrooms. They had one room. And in that room was where they prepared food, where they ate food, where they slept, right? That was their one room. And now they're bringing a, 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 a husband, his, in, his betrothed wife, who's about to give birth, and they're bringing them into now the main room of the house. And there wasn't room for them in the main room of the house. And so I'm thinking they had to move a table, right? They, they had to move some furniture. In other words, they, they had to rearrange some things. And I think that's kind of what it's like when we need to make room for God in our own life is that really we have to reprioritize some things. We have to change some things. Motives shift, priorities shift. 
what's important start shifting. We start rearranging, if you will, the furniture of our life because we're trying to make room for what God wants to do in our life. And if we don't make room for what God wants to do in our life, then he won't be able to do what he wants to do in our life because he's just going to knock. He's not going to make room for himself. But if we're going to open the door, then we have to make room for what God wants to do. You need to understand that God by nature is disruptive. If you want to hear God chuckle, explain to him your plan. (laughs) And some of you have tried that. I've tried it numerous times. I've submitted a lot of proposals to God. I've not had him take me up on any of them so far, but I've submitted a lot of proposals. And I think he chuckles every time and said, well, that's one way to think about it. (laughs) But God by nature is disruptive. In fact, Proverbs 16, 9 says, a man's heart plans his ways, but it's God that directs his steps. And say, I think to the innkeeper's credit, what he did was he opened the door and he allowed God to disrupt his life. In fact, I would say the people, if you read the Bible, think about this, the people who saw the greatest miracles. The people who saw God do the most extraordinary things were the people that made the fastest peace with God interrupting their lives. Think about this. Abraham went to work one day, came home, and God said, hey, I need to talk. Now, he didn't know who God was. They didn't have a relationship. They'd, they'd not been pen pals. They weren't, he wasn't following them on Twitter. They'd not hooked up on Instagram. And all of a sudden, the God of the universe says, hey, Abraham, you know, I'd like to do something really special with your life. And Abraham said, great. And he said, so I'd like to start in the morning. So if you could pack up everything tonight. And the reason that Abraham is known as the father of our faith is because he had enough faith to let God disrupt every part of his life. And assuming that if God was disrupting it, if God was seemingly creating chaos, then really he was creating order. But what God calls chaos and what we call chaos don't look the same. And what God calls order and what we call order don't always look the same. And sometimes God is ordering our steps when we see the greatest amount of chaos. My God, that's good preaching. I didn't say that last night. Y'all must be special. Don't tell them that. Anyways. And then I love this. I love this, that he brought him into the family room, into the main room, not the guest room. Because could we all be honest? Let's just be honest. It's Christmas. Sometimes we're more comfortable when God is close, but not constant. Like sometimes we want to know that God is close enough we could get to if there's a problem, but not constant enough to disrupt our lives. And to be honest, if, if, if just say it, white boys preaching. It, be honest to say that, that a lot of times, a lot of times we're more comfortable when he's nearby, but not all up in our stuff. In fact, sometimes we'd rather have him in the guest room than the living room. Because in the guest room, he's close by. We can get to him if we need him. We know he's near, so we can kind of feel better. But if we're going to put him in the living room, we got to start rearranging furniture. The disruption grows more and more. And so the truth of it is, I love the idea that he came, but he didn't come. See, this is how you know that this innkeeper, as we're calling him, he didn't get an angelic visitation from God saying, hey, 
My son, the savior of the world, is going to be born in your living room. He didn't get that. We know that, and we recently want to know. Because if he would have been told, Jesus is going to be born at your house, the Christ, the Messiah, he'd have made sure the guest room was available. But Jesus doesn't want to live in your guest room. He wants to live in your living room. <laughs> and sometimes it's just a little easier to give him a close place than a constant place. You see, here's, here's the reality, that, that God is preeminent. And what that means, what his preeminence dictates, really, it demands, is that God can only have first place. Now, you can choose what place he has, but he really can only have first place. Because he's a king, he can only have the place in your life that's reserved for the king. Because he's a Lord, he can only have the place in your life that's reserved for a Lord. He can only have the first place because he is first. And I think sometimes this is why we all follow God, but some people seem to get more mileage out of it than others. It may not have to do that God loves them anymore. It may have to do with the room they're giving him in their life. I think this is why... The, the Old Testament, if you will, the commandments. You'll, you shall have no other gods before me. By the way, grace didn't change the Ten Commandments. It's still God's standard. Grace just gave us a chance to keep the standard. And it gave us a covering when we don't. But it didn't give us an excuse not to try. Are you with me? And so I think he says, have no other gods. And, and of course, most of us in here, none of us would say, well, you know, I, I have another god. If you had another God, you might not be here. But, but really speaking about idols, and an idol is anything in your life that vies for the first place. Anything in your life that competes for the first place is an idol. Anything in your life that you have to check with before you can follow Jesus fully is an idol. And, and God, can, God can only take the first place because he is preeminent. He is, he is first. And see, he's God whether you give him room or not. But what he can do in your midst determines or is determined by the room that you make for him. And the people that saw God do the most extraordinary things are the people that gave him the greatest amount of room, that allowed him to disrupt their lives the most. They're the people that, that gave him the first place. Matthew 16, 25, if you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you'll find it. See, you'll never see the glory of a king until you give God the place of a king. You'll never see the glory of a king till you give him the place of a king. And so this innkeeper opened the door, and, and then he made room. And then here's the most awesome thing. He experienced the miracle. And I use the in, in, in particular on purpose. Not a miracle. Not a miracle. The miracle. He experienced the miracle. I don't know if you've ever been in the room when a baby was born. I've had that privilege a couple of times. Um, it's, it's an extraordinary experience because this life all of a sudden is in this room. It was there, but it was in a womb. Now it's in the room. <laughs> right? It went from womb to room and everything changed. 
Now you can hear it without a stethoscope or something like that. You can hear the baby. And it's like life fills the room and it's exciting, right? And, and the baby's crying and it doesn't bother you at all. It's very exciting to hear the baby cry. And it's this, this is life. Well, that's when, when a baby's born. That's significant. But what about the baby? Unto us a child is born. Unto us a Savior is given. What about when the Savior's born? Because when you read, when you read John 1.14, if you're thinking about the innkeeper's experience at the birth of Jesus in his living room, this verse takes on an extraordinary different texture. Because it says, and the word became flesh. He watched it. He experienced it. And he dwelt among us. He watched God step into the world. (laughs) And we've seen his glory. The glory as in the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. For us, that's kind of a scripture that is significant. For him, it became an experience that he lived through. He opened the door, he made room, and he watched God put on flesh and step in to creation. Here's kind of the idea. The experience that he had was determined by the room that he made. Would you like to have a new experience with the king of the world? then maybe you have to make a little more room. Maybe you have to give him the family room and not the guest room. And so the room that we make for him determines that the glory, the glory that we see. You see, it wouldn't have been the same experience if Jesus had been born at the neighbor's house. It wouldn't have been the same experience if Jesus would have been born in the guest house. The experience that he had was because he made room in his house. (laughs) I love it because really the idea is the main room, but it would have been the family room. And I think it speaks to the access that God wants to our life, that God wants to come in. In fact, Revelation 3.20, I read it just a minute ago, but we'll read the rest of it. It says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, then I'll come in and I'll share with you a meal as friends. Well, I stand at the door and knock. Are you going to open the door? I don't know. But if you open the door, the room you make determines the experience you have. And God doesn't want to stay in your guest room. He wants to stay in your family room. God wants access to the entirety of your life, to the epicenter of your life, to the core of your life. And while I think that it speaks to the access that, the, the, the access that God wants to the core of our life, I think it also speaks to the access that God grants us to him. Right, That God's saying, hey, I want to be in the middle of your life because I want you in the middle of my life. In fact, Hebrews 4, Hebrews 4 says, says it this way. It says, so then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weakness, for he's faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly. Watch this. Let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. Now, where is God? If someone said, where is God? We would say, he's on the throne. Does that make sense? In fact, we'll say, if something happens, sometimes people will say, well, this didn't knock God off his throne. Because we assume that the ruler of the universe is sitting on a throne, right? 
And so if God is on a throne, and if there's a throne room, and that God is a father, then the throne room is his living room. And if that's true, then Jesus said, hey, if you give me access to your living room, I give you access to mine. You can come boldly to the throne of grace and receive mercy when you need it most. And so here's this innkeeper. He opens the door. He makes room. And then he experiences probably the most miraculous thing that could ever be experienced in God puts on flesh. And, And he gave access to God to his living room. And God did that. And when we do that, God gives us access to his living room. Now, what does this all hinge on? Well, it always hinges on faith. It always hinges on on faith, on, on our belief. Because I really think, think about this, it's really our faith that determines the place or the room that we give God. The people that give God no room in their life is because they don't believe that he's actually God. See, I don't think the issue with most people is that they want to be sinners or they want to be mean or they, or they want to be whatever. I don't think that's the way people think at all. I think it's just simply this. There are people who have faith to give God room and there are people who don't. And the, the faith that we have in him determines the room that we give to him. See, when the angel appeared to Mary in Luke chapter 1 and said, Hey, Mary, so how are you doing? And, well, I'm doing pretty good. Yeah, about to get married. Hey, that's great. Would you like to be pregnant today? Talk about interruptions. And what Mary said is, Behold the maidservant of the Lord. In other words, I'll give you place. In the center of my being, I will give you place. I'll make room for you. But she said, look, the, the maidservant of the Lord, it's a, it's a declaration of faith that God is Lord, he is first, he is in charge, and I'll give him everything that I have. I'll make the most room, I'll be as accommodating as I can to his interruption because I believe in who he is. And I think at the end of the day, if you really think about it, it's really our belief that determines the room that we give God in our lives. And for us to say that we believe in God and not give God the center place of our life is a conflicting idea. Because if he is God, if he is God, we should give him the best. And if he is not God, we should give him nothing at all. And so it's always going to be an issue of faith. Who do you, as Jesus said to his disciples, who do you say that I am? Who do we say that he is? Because if it's the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords, we do not put him in our guest house. We do not leave him at the church house. We bring him into our house and we we make room for what he wants to do in our lives. (laughs) We make room for him. There's a, a Christmas movie. It's the Santa Claus. Don't judge me. I don't want an email about Santa. I just take the wheel, Jesus. Anyways, don't judge me. I can't help it that I like hot chocolate in Christmas movies. And you can only watch the, the, the nativity story so many times. I mean, let's just be honest. Eventually, you've got to watch one of the other movies. But there's this line when, when Scott Calvin's at the North Pole, and, and it's kind of an interesting thing because he says, I see it, but I don't believe it. Because we always think, well, if I see, if I saw what God wanted to do, I would believe he was God. If I saw what God could do, I would believe he is God. We always think, well, if I could see it. But could I remind you that there were people in the Bible who saw Jesus raise the dead, 
cleanse lepers, cast out demons, make lame people walk and blind people see, and they saw it, and still they were the ones chanting, crucify, crucify, right? And so we need to understand that when we're talking about faith, all of us would sit back and say, well, God, if you would show me what you were trying to do, I'd make room. And God's saying, no, you won't. It doesn't work that way. Because what Judy the Elf so eloquently put to Scott Calvin in the Santa Claus one is, it's seeing isn't believing. Believing is seeing. Seeing isn't believing. You could see it and still not believe it. But if you believe it, you will see it. See, I think the innkeeper didn't really know exactly what was going on, but he believed enough to make room. He believed enough to open the door. He believed enough to make room. And because he believed enough to give Jesus the best room that he could give him, then today we're talking about him and not his neighbors. And I think for many of you today, if you could give Jesus the best room you could give him, that we might be telling stories about you like we do Frida Lindsay, like we do some of the great men and women that are, that are alive and still living and those who have gone before, right? Like the Jack Taylors. So many wonderful missionaries and powerful people. So the question is, <laughs> will you make room for him? Will you stand with me?